0: this is oh, off no. the rails
1: goodness gracious that way i
0: I would argue this one started off not on the rails and just continued to proceed even more yeah this is goodness off the rails. goodness gracious this yeah, is, that is
1: one, good so oh my god okay this all is right. good this um, is gonna be great so
2: no edits okay just put it up raw just release it just record <laughs> right.
0: an intro at the beginning and be like hey a little peek behind the curtain we had to record Dash this one
1: uncut
0: after all of our respective bedtimes so honestly
1: I, I might consider that that's not that's not terrible.
2: Dice pirates uncut. let's do it.
1: and salutations board game fans the dice pirates are back with episode 26 our spooky games episode (sighs) halloween's coming up it's always fun to go ahead and take some time with the family play some games that have a spookier feel to them i'm your captain ian as always joined by matt and aaron how you guys doing i'm great i'm ready to talk about some boo ord games boo
2: boo ord games board games you get it i'm
0: just gonna go ahead and go uh it's a halloween spooktacular
1: i'm really regretting waiting for you to be free to record this episode now uh that's right you've set me free from my thousand year prison Mwahaha!
2: spooky stuff that's i'm trying to get
0: into the season you guys are such a drag we're here to talk about spooky games yeah? yo. Go to your friendly local game store, and the only thing on the shelf is Candyland! Ah! No!
1: We are here to talk about spooky games. We are here to talk about spoopy games as well. Matt, you're such a boomer, you didn't even know what that meant. I can't believe it. No, uh,
2: spoopy's not a thing. I I refuse to engage with it. Uh, I gave up on learning internet lingo about the time that uh, I can has cheeseburger became a thing. (laughs) And I I decided that I... I'm out. That's enough internet. I don't want to learn any more of your lingo. Yeah, you
1: basically gave up on the internet when it started. Yes,
2: that's actually very <laughs> accurate. It's amazing that I'm even on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> I was under the impression for a number of episodes that this was a local radio program.
0: Yeah, Matt keeps trying to, to reach out to me on IRC, and I'm like, I don't. no one has that anymore.
1: Yeah, I keep asking why we don't have more callers on this. We are going to go ahead and move on to our soapboxes. And first up, Aaron, I know you have a hot take for us.
0: So I recently, for the first time, played a very popular, very infamous game called Sidereal Confluence. It is a game entirely about trading with other players. Basically, you've got uh, some, some cards in front of you that represent machines that take some resources and turn them into other resources. The problem is you don't make the resources that you need in order to run your machines. So you run your machines, you get your pile of resources, and then the trading phase starts. And this happens in real time. Everyone's, it is literally a Kazakh marketplace. Everyone's shouting across the table, offering three reds for two blues or five grays for seven yellows. Just it's getting crazy. It's getting wild. I am something of a a wallflower, as, as somebody with uh with with some some anxiety issues. Uh, and I think, and this is this is a hot take. It's going to get me some some hate mail on Twitter, uh, but I won't see it because I don't ever use Twitter. Uh, I think it's a bad game, and I think that any game that is entirely reliant on your ability to navigate social skills is a bad game design. I think most social deduction games are not good design.
2: What? What kind of what kind of wild hot take did you just throw out there like we weren't going to challenge it. Any game that has social deduction is not good design.
0: Most social deduction games. Like like regular werewolf is a bad game. It's an activity that's complicated. It's Barely a game, because you just have to, you have to guess and intuit, and it's all about how good you are at schmoozing the other people around the table, and that's nonsense and that's crap and get out of here. I don't want to play that. It's a bad game.
1: <laughs> you know, you can be objectively wrong, but I do, I do understand the frustration because it's a lot of social deduction games, especially games that rely 100 on trading. Like if you if you're not good at sweet talking if you're if your approach to a trade is this is what i want uh, oh you, don't, you oh you don't want that um okay i guess i guess we'll just do what you want instead you know and just roll over like a limp fish you know if, like, if
0: i can lose a game if i can lose a board game because i got talked down or shouted over I think that's bad game design.
2: (laughs) Well, it's it's exploiting a skill set that is uh, not necessarily in everybody's like wheelhouse. It makes me think of one of the great, uh, one of my favorite lines from a great show, Gravity Falls, uh, when they play uh, the Dungeons and Dragons uh, parody game, Dungeons, Dungeons, and more Dungeons, and uh, Grunkle Stan says only nerds would design a game where charisma is a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, and it's, it's true. It's, it's sort of true. And so I think that part of our aversion to social deduction games is that they require us as nerds to do that uh, most dreaded of things, interact with humans, uh, with our voices, look upon them, look upon their ghastly visages with our, with our own eyes and have to make assessments about what they're saying. They are like uncomfortable and they're definitely not for everybody, even playing like mafia and you know, those uh, you yeah, know, dreaded like party games, youth group games. If you're a kid who grew up in a uh, church youth group culture and have to play mafia, like those could be like agonizing for the introverted people in the crowd. But social deduction games, like writ large, can't be just like you know, totally written off because even like really great games that aren't social deduction games, like Dune. Uh, have social aspects as you try to figure out who's bluffing and who's lying. But you're probably not wrong about sidereal confluence. Uh, This game looks insane. It looks just like a like a, just a barf of like crazy like cards and iconography and it looks confusing. It sounds like a very unfortunate diagnosis that you would get at a doctor. Um, (laughs) You've got a... I'm I'm. I'm sad, sad to report that you've got a Sidereal Confluence
1: and we're going to have to operate immediately. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's very much an activity, and if you're, it's not an activity you enjoy, then it's not going to go great. You know? And, I mean, you know, I think on a small level, those games can be fun. The The trading card game, Pit, where you're basically just trying to collect a full hand of the same cards, and you're like, yelling at each other, I got two to trade! You know, things like that. Like, it's a, That can be fun, but in small doses, maybe it works better for people. But, you know... It's good. It's good though. Can I just really quickly?
2: I don't want to. I don't want to spend too much time on this game, but I'm looking at pictures of it on BGG, and I'm looking at. I haven't played the game, so Aaron, you'll have to correct me. But I'm looking at what appears to be uh, cards representing the various uh, races or uh, factions that you could play in the game, and I'm going to read some of these names to you. This sounds like.
0: Uh... Good luck.
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: This just every sounds like... players every every race has a full sheet front and back player guide and included on the player guide is a phonetic pronunciation of each race's name because it's all nonsense. There were some that I looked at for 10 minutes, had the pronunciation guide, and I still was like, I don't, these letters don't, that's not a sound that I can make with my human mouth.
2: Sure. There's some of them that you're like, okay, that's a word. Well, it's not really a word, but I can suss it out. The Kaleon Plutocracy, or right. the Federian Conclave, or the Yinji Society. And then you get into the Kitzer Kitteril Atocracy, the Imdril Nomads, or my favorite, the Kiyijik. Gavalumian Directorate, uh, spelled K-J-S-J-A-V-I-K-A-L-I-M-M. The second M is just offensive.
1: That does sound like a lot. It's actually really interesting, though, that you did like mention that, like that the theme almost in some ways kind of makes it that much harder to get into, because that actually dovetails a little bit into your soapbox, Matt, that you're going to be coming up with, where you're going to be talking about parks and how the theme feels almost tacked on because I know you guys played it digitally the other day and it really changed the experience of the game for you.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So not this Sunday, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before... As if that matters in time, you could be listening to this episode in 40 years from now, the irradiated wasteland of New America. The uh, We played, uh, one of our fellow Dice Pirates, Max, was uh, under the weather, so we had our Sunday night game night online on Board Game Arena. And we played an old favorite that we all like, and that is Parks. And here's the thing about Parks. Parks is a looker. Parks is a tactile Uh, nirvana of like wonderful little things to pick up and play with Uh, a little wooden moose and a little piece of uh, sunshine i mean it just you couldn't and a little hiker that you can happily bebop down a trail uh it's a great wonderful game to play max even splurged for the giant neoprene mat that just makes the whole thing more attractive and fun playing it uh, online it kind of revealed that absent those wonderful textural experiences and the visuals of playing with those pieces it's kind of just a B-flat worker placement game. It's kind of like toccato with an attitude. It just uh, it wasn't as fun. And I kind of realized that some games, uh, some good games are made great because of uh, good pieces. Sometimes even a bad game might be made good. And absent those uh, visceral kind of textural experiences of playing with it, you kind of reveal that the mechanics themselves don't really hold together. What do you think, Aaron? You were in on that game
0: parks is the the latest in game uh that that got its success from what i call the splendor effect Mm -hmm. Uh, because as as i've brought up multiple times on here uh, i hate splendor it's a terrible game and i never want to play it again
1: objection you are that is a objectively wrong opinion sir
0: splendor is uh objectively a very simple and bad game uh it would it would not be a game that we are still talking about right now today if the little gems that you have to collect had just been little cardboard chits that you punched out of a board and then just kind of threw in a loose pile on the table the fact that they were these beautifully printed wonderfully weighted these like heavy thick solid little poker chips that you can rattle around in your hand and they make such a satisfying little thunk when you drop them on the table if the game had not come out with those it would have come and gone and we all would have forgotten about it but it was nice to touch and that made you enjoy playing it yeah and parks you have uh in addition to the your four main resources that you, you use throughout the game you can also acquire Wild resources and in this game the wild resources are represented by this absolute smorgasbord of little woodcut animals and There's like a dozen different animals or something so Throughout the game you probably could go a whole game and not grab the same wild animal Over the course of the entire game. So each time you get one. It's an exciting thing because you got a moose and a bear in a fish or in a bird and you just have this little menagerie in front of you that you're using as you're going down the trail and and as you said i mean the the production of of parks is bar none parks as a physical board game is a justification for why board games should exist physically and not just all be on computers it's it's the artwork is beautiful. The components are a delight to behold. It's, it's got the shrink form uh, trays uh, by the company Game Trays, and they're even molded to look like bits of wood that have had bowls carved out of them to put the resources into. Physically, it is a, a wonder to behold. But man, when you when you're just playing just the game part of it, it loses eighty percent of that magic, and
2: mm. I wouldn't know. If, I don't know if I'd call eighty percent, but I would say maybe half. Maybe half of the fun. Is it's gone. not. It, it was still a fun game. I had a good time. Yeah, it.
0: it's it's not bad. Not bad but again, if it had just been little cardboard tokens that you threw in a bag mm-hmm. when you put it in the box, I would have come and gone. Would not have gotten the. Yeah. Uh, Sequel slash lighter version that you can get now, trails like, yeah,
2: it wouldn't have been the phenomenon that it was. And it, uh, well, I think you made the point of what I really wanted to mention with this as being a soapbox is just the beauty of board games as a medium is that it combines gameplay with tactile physical experiences. That's what's so wonderful and beautiful about the hobby. It's a game that celebrates graphic and, and structural design, component design as much as it celebrates smart rules. And uh, Parks is by no means a bad game, but married with its really exceptional sense of, like, who it wants to be visually in the story, it wants to tell with its components, it becomes something really exceptional. On a board game arena, it's just a just fine worker of game.
0: I feel like I need to, you know, peek behind the curtain here. I have an embarrassing number of, like, Simon bucket of plastic board games where i mm-hmm. bought the extras to get all of the bits and pieces in custom sculpted plastic and resin rather oh, yeah. than being cardboard shit so like i mean
2: let's be honest there's nobody out there playing the others and some of these like crazy games that Simon put out that had like limited runs but everybody wants that like giant tentacle beast thing anybody yeah. out there playing cthulhu death may die they just want that giant cthulhu thing
1: this is definitely a topic that I think we're going to come back to at some point in many ways an extension of our discussion on theme and the way that components and the theme in general just accentuate a game something that I wish you come back I want to come back at you Aaron but of course in the interest of time we can't get too into it because we do want to talk about our games for this episode but
0: oh, that just sounds like you agree is what I'm hearing You're 100% but, uh...
1: wrong. You could not <laughs> be more wrong. You're removed from this podcast. Good day sir. We are going to go ahead and move <laughs> on to our soapboxes for this episode. That was our soapboxes. We are going to go ahead and move on to Bitter Board Gamers for this episode. Of course, the game where I read some one star reviews from BGG, and you guys are going to go ahead and guess what game they are from. You guys ready? You guys excited? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. First review for your first game. Not really a game. A total snooze fest where the decision-making is easy and the game is plagued with way, way too much randomness. You want to go somewhere? Okay, there's a 1 in 12 chance that you just die on the way. Can you influence that? Not likely. Stay away from this pile of crap.
2: Uh, I know what this is.
1: You know what this is? I
2: know what this is. It's a game that I love. I think I know what this is. The 1 in 12 chance that you die on the way there is the giveaway. It's dead of winter. It is, in it's- fact... This is dead, dead of winter. Fire. This is dead of winter. These, okay, first of all. <laughs> what, they said it's a snooze fest where every decision is like, What read that first part again where they talk about it being a snooze fest.
1: A total snooze fest where the decision making is easy and the game is plagued with way too much randomness. That is, is,
2: okay. Your, your own logic is flawed, sir. BGG reviewer. Because the games, the the decisions in the game cannot be easy if it is if there's an agonizing one in twelve chance of choice of death every time you move. The choices are agonizing by design. That's what makes Dead of Winter. I mean, I, sometimes the choice is logical, like I need to scavenge gasoline, so I should probably go to the gas station. But the choice of whether or not to go to the gas station is brutal because you could get killed or you could get frostbite. Uh, it is, uh, that edge of your seat tension of, like, risk-reward, it could be just as easy to not go to the gas station and ask one of your, uh, table mates to go get the gasoline, but then maybe we don't get enough gasoline, and maybe the colony collapses, and maybe there was a traitor all along. It's it's these choices that make Dead of Winter great.
0: I, this This is is, completely unrelated, I just want to say I'm really loving, uh, punch-drunk-tired Matt Clower energy on this episode.
2: Coming
1: in hot, coming hot. <laughs> no holds barred. He is, He's gonna let it all out. Ooh, are you guys ready for a second game? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. First review. It's just an awful read the idiot's mind game.
0: <clears throat> I mean, uh, cards against humanity.
1: Uh, not cards against humanity. Although that would fit.
0: I've I mean,
2: never, I've never played cards against humanity. I have a I just I just am opposed to it on like I'm just opposed to it on grounds that it looks stupid. <laughs>
0: it just doesn't look fun. I'm a, uh, a a a soft Cards Against Humanity apologist. I think it does not deserve all of the hate that it gets. I'm not saying that Cards Against Humanity is a good game. Or a great game, well, we are but what I am saying is like of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but what I am saying is, if you have a group of friends and that's the only game that you ever play and you play it every single weekend, absolutely you hate it. But like, mm-hmm. if you played Scythe every weekend for three years, you'd hate Scythe too. Because... So I
1: just want to I just want to make sure we're on record here. The man who says he despises social deduction games is defending cards against humanity in the same episode i just want to say this i'm getting whiplash (laughs) and he's
2: he's morally opposed to splendor he's taking a hard stand (laughs) against
0: splendor (laughs) and he's come to the defense of
2: cards against (laughs) humanity sir
0: who are you look you brought me on here for my my good looks and my hot takes and i can't give the audience my good looks so good
2: good looks and
0: hot takes All oh right. that's, okay that's that, that's a discussion
1: we're going to come back to because yeah. i think there's a lot to dive in there but i am going to give you your second review worst game ever just like battleship but with words except the original battleship is more fun in fact this is more like battleship the movie wait they're not talking about code names are they they're talking about code code names? Names. get out of here get out of here
2: who are these people (laughs) codenames is beautiful elegant smart fun it's everything you want in a board game i don't even have anything else to
1: say about it i also really enjoy some of the re-releases they've done codename pictures is i think actually an amazing variation on the game i've never played that i'm very curious about it yeah that sounds awesome the pictures are also they're all kind of like abstract not not fully abstracted but they're all real weird pictures that give you a lot of flexibility to kind of do things it's pretty cool i you know we should talk about that sometime but i think codenames just as a party game is, is a great game there's a reason it's still so popular
2: i just want to say one last thing about codenames though like the uh, the you know codenames is cool but the real ones are out there playing decrypto that's all I want. To
1: yes say about that. oh gosh that's all i want to say about that oh decrypto we're making we're te- we're making some real deep cuts on this. The, we're gonna be we're gonna be revisiting this, is this called, episode.
2: We're re- uh, we're retitling this uh, the bold stances podcast.
0: At the <laughs> last Simon Expo, at the last Cimon Expo, uh, I was playing to crypto at a table with a group of people, and Eric Lang walked over as I was explaining it to everyone, and he just like whispered in my ear, and he was like, "This is the best game I've ever played," and then walked off, and I was like. I I don't need to buy any more games. I mean, I did, but... And he's never watched that ear. That's true. That's true.
2: (laughs) It's still just got, like, a little bit of Eric Lang DNA on
0: it.
1: Just a little bit of Whisper, just
0: hanging around.
1: All right, yeah, we're going to move on. Um, Before this gets any weirder, we're going to go ahead and get into our discussion about some good, spooky Halloween games. We'll be right back. Oh, yeah.
0: Forgot what we were talking about.
1: All righty.
2: And welcome back to the Dice Pirates. <laughs> okay, that was a terrible idea. Uh, welcome back to the Dice Pirates for our main topic this week, and we're talking about, as the kids say, I've been informed, spooky games. That's right. Halloween season is upon us, and so we're going to talk about some of our favorite games for creepy times, games to play when it's spooky or when you want to evoke the spooky season. So uh, we got a few choice picks for you for uh, Halloween parties, and uh, we're going to kick it off. Uh, you know, board gamers love themselves some Lovecraftian themes, and there's a lot of great options out there in that space, from the venerable Arkham Horror series to others, but uh, Ian's got one that I think probably hasn't got enough attention. Uh, Ian, tell us about Mountains of Madness.
1: So Mountains of Madness is, as you speak, you know, a Lovecraftian type game. It is built on that whole idea you are ascending a mountain you are trying to escape and as you do so you're getting to the top of this mountain you're taking a plane you're trying to fly away and it is a cooperative game you are working together to reach through it's reminiscent of games like elder sign where you can choose what speed you want to go You don't have to rush to the end. You can stay in the easier areas, but the longer you stay, the harder it's gonna get. It's also very similar to something like Dead of Winter, where you have to work together to provide the appropriate resources to pass each challenge. And where this game really comes into its own is that process. You have one person who acts as a leader. They're gonna turn over the card. They're gonna let everyone know what is needed for that round and then you go into the communication round. So, in this game, nobody's allowed to talk to each other. You're not allowed to tell people what you have in your hands until that happens, until you start until you start that process of working together and the round begins where you can communicate in this phase and so that seems easy it's like okay well now we can talk we can tell you what we have but as you progress through the game as you get relics as you get new cards things are going to help you you also get madness cards madness cards are going to give you they're essentially going to give you a handicap that you have to work with over the course of the game. Like, for instance, when you're communicating, you may have to face away from the table and you can't talk to anybody specifically. Or you might have to high-five everyone at the table before you say anything at all. Random things like that, but you also can't tell people what your madness is you're not allowed to say what it is and then after the communication phase is gone you just pretend like it didn't happen nobody's allowed to say what it was you can't talk about you know oh, okay no so i need to do this i need to shake your hand before i give you a card you can't say anything like that so everyone has to figure it out and so you're you're trying to Get through this process you're trying to work together but as you go throughout the game it just gets wackier and wackier and wackier you got people standing up and doing jumping jacks in the middle of the phase you got one person covering their eye and using a pinky to pick their cards up and like what is happening right now do we do we have enough do we have enough gems do we have enough pickaxes what's going on can we talk please guys i don't know if we got this right we're about to lose we're about to stay on this mountain for the rest of our lives We're about to die it gets crazy but in a really fun way that I think makes it a great Halloween game for that reason is that the process of playing, just the, the zanier it gets and this mounting like madness that you have to deal with, I think makes it a super fun choice for, for that style of game.
2: I love the sound of this game because it does something that every single Lovecraftian game is trying to do. But I feel like this game approaches it in a more unique and interesting way. And that is every, every Lovecraftian mm-hmm. game is about gradually losing your, your mind and going insane. That's kind of uh, the the baseline uh, level of every H.P. Uh, Lovecraft story, is somebody is exposed to some horrible truth about the universe that pushes them past the boundaries of sanity. And if you've read the Mountains of Madness short story, or, no, or novella that this game is loosely adapted from, which you should, because it's great, uh, that's kind of the premise, is some explorers head into the Arctic and discover something so shocking about humanity that it drives them insane. But every game, ha- every Lovecraftian game, from like Arkham Horror to Eldritch Horror to other horrors, all have this mechanic of slowly losing your sanity, and it's usually rendered as like getting a pile of like tokens that indicate you're going crazy, and then you get too many, and it's like you're insane. But this game is forcing you to act and react to the world in nonsensical ways. And it's trying to simulate insanity in a way that hinders the game. I think that's smart. I can also see why a lot of people bumped off of this. This game has a really, like, divisive uh, presence on uh, Board Game Geek. It's got, like, a 6.6 rating, which is basically the board game equivalent of love it or hate it. And I can see some people really not liking uh, doing all of these weird stunts and and things that... uh, Feel a little silly and uncomfortable but i think it's smart i think it's a great way to render the idea that like you're going crazy
1: yeah and i think that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about a lot of these halloween games like what makes a spooky game there are plenty of games out there that are super tightly designed that are well made that you can have a like well-rounded experience with but you're looking for an adventure with these games you're looking for something fun something that Gives you an experience like a, a group moment. And I think that, you know, like you said, you know, it, people may bounce off of it because of the weirdness of it. But I think if you're looking for kind of a, a group storytelling moment, if you're looking to enjoy the process of, of the game and not worrying about where you end up, I think a lot of these games are great. So that's why I, I personally really enjoy Madness of Madness. I'm looking forward to playing it again when I get a group. It combines a lot of like the best parts of, you know, Dead of Winter, Elder Sign, uh, things like that I I like that a lot so I'm looking forward to trying out with you guys sometime
2: I also like that it's a little bit silly which is an underrated part of the Halloween and like horror experience is the winking kind of like uh that it should be a little bit funny not always I mean I know some people genuinely like like horror movies that are just like relentlessly scary but when you're trying to have like a Halloween party and you're trying to have people over and you want to you want an experience that's like spooky themed but probably more laughs like this is a good choice because some of the stunts and things that you have to do are a little bit silly and everyone having to to do it around the table is uh gonna be by its nature like a little bit awkward and so this is a good like somewhere between a board game and a party game it also reminds me of so much of a completely underrated party game called ta-da that C- cmon published back in 2016 and uh is also love it or hate it because it has that same mechanic of your opponents can like curse you with various afflictions that uh force you to like maybe only pick up the dice with two fingers or have to hold a finger mustache up to your face while you play the
0: game it's just it's really silly and it's uh it's actually it's just a lot of fun Tada! so good that was always i loved running demos of tada because it did not matter what convention we were at if we had that on the table Everyone was coming over to see the game where, like, one person had the side of their head to the table. The other person had to, like, stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down. Everyone was doing T-Rex arms. So, I, you know, t- to your point of uh, silliness is, is a good thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's not something that you see in a lot of board games of just, like, get wacky and embrace that wackiness uh and i think that mechanically that's a really that's a really interesting way to represent that idea of like the madness and the going insane is by having these weird physical quirks that you have to actually you know constrain yourself to as a manifestation of the fact that you're all slowly losing your minds i think that's a that's a really interesting design mechanism Ian, what do you
2: think about the look and the components of this one? It's, uh, it's probably more simple. It's table presence. As I'm looking at pictures of it, I haven't played it, but uh, it looks a. Little, it has good art, but it's it's more simplified than a lot of these horror themed Lovecraftian adventures where there's like lots of minis and things. Do you feel like it it still works and it feels evocative?
1: I think it does feel evocative. I think it's important actually to have a simpler look to the game because a lot of it is going to be based around okay well we need to make sure we have this many cards with this symbol on it and this many this many symbols and so you got to make sure that's easily determinable and especially when you're doing all these crazy things at the table you don't want to have a million things that you can knock over you want to keep things fairly simple and it helps keep cost down as well for a game that's going to be a little bit more interesting a little bit maybe not some people aren't as willing to pick it up because of how strange it might be i think it's worth it to make sure that the price point is a little bit more you know a little bit more comfortable for some people because i think that's going to bring a lot of people in and i mean there's still some like it's not because it it, it may look simpler but the components are still well designed like it's still a really nice looking game it still feels good to play around with so even though it might not be the most beautiful looking game ever it may not be you know quite as it may not be quite as literal as something like betrayal or maybe dead at winter i still think there's a lot to you can still get a lot out of this game especially because it's almost more about the interactions you have with other people than you have with the board itself. Sure. Cool.
2: Sounds like a fun one.
1: The next thing we're talking about has a great tagline on BGG. It's another one that is a little bit split. People do rate it 6.3, but I'm excited to hear more about it. The tagline says, Use transparent cards to tell tragic tales of misery and misfortune. It's Gloom, an older one from 2005, Aaron,
0: you brought this one to us Tell us about gloom. Gloom is a fantastic little card game. it's it's great uh, it's a, it's a it's a great game for when you've got you know two or three or four people and you're waiting on the last person to show up. It's a fantastic little time killer. Basically in gloom, you have your family in front of you. I know that there are expansions that add like there's you could have a house and pets. But this is all just based on my most recent play of the the base game you have four family members roughly mom dad brother sister and the goal of the game is to make your family as miserable as possible and then kill them while they're very sad and the more sad they are the more points you get and that's how you win the game um so as you are saying, in the, the cards in this game are all this uh, transparent plastic. So you've got the portrait in the middle, and then the rest of the card is, is see-through. And you play cards on top of your family members as well as your opponent's family members. And those cards will have modifiers around the portrait that start to stack up on top of each other. And so the game becomes trying to figure out the best way to because it's each card is going to have multiple modifiers in the circle around it and wherever there's a modifier or even just a blank it's going to cover up that same spot on everything below it so you have to to puzzle out how to get this minus 15 and this minus 20 on your family member in the right order so that you're not accidentally covering up one of those negatives because The person at the end of the game with the lowest most negative score is the winner You can also play cards on your opponent's family members that make them happier part of the 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 real fun of the game to me is that all of these cards that you're playing on the other family members have a little you know five or six words just a little brief story underneath the 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 title of the card or the banner of the card that just kind of says like hey how's your day going you know i might play a card on on your dad matt that says uh won a pie eating contest and then he gets a plus 15 to his happiness and you don't like that so then you might play a card on top of that that says uh, got pushed into traffic. And now it's a minus 20. So it's just about telling a story. It, it really gets a lot of fun if everyone gets into it and you try and figure out the the narrative thread that you're weaving for all of your family members and just how wild and wacky of a day they're having that they won a piotting contest, got pushed into traffic, uh, got saved by an old woman, and then later had to bury the old woman because that was their mom <laughs> and it's just about timing making sure you can you can kill your family member at just the right moment and make sure they have the worst most untimely death of all uh, mechanically it's a very simple game so i kind of understand why it has the ratings that it has but it's it's a real hoot and a half like I said, it's it's a great game to play because the cards are all plastic. It's a great game to play if you're sitting having a couple around the table. Yeah. Somebody knocks thing something over, you don't have to worry about anything getting ruined. Just rinse them off. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's a it is an excellent excellent little game. Like I said, you know, if we're if the the context for this episode is that you're having a Halloween party, this is a fantastic addition to that, and you can get the base game for like i don't know 10 15 bucks on amazon it's real small it'll fit in your backpack
2: this looks great i'm so into this i've heard i've I've heard of gloom it's kind of like it is interesting because it's at the very kind of bleeding edge of like the uh board game renaissance in some ways like 2005 kind of like shortly after the big Uh, uh, Catan boom and the interest in the board game is starting to really ramp up. And So this is sort of an early game and people aren't talking about it anymore these days, but I'm, I'm familiar with it. I've never seen a copy in the wild. I would love to play it. I could see why this game has a relatively low ranking on BGG because the BGG community tends to really reward crunchy, thinky games that more traditionally meet that definition of like a game. A Game for Gamers. And this is much more of a storytelling experience than a game. It has rules. It has an objective. But it's much more, like you said, about the story you're weaving about the day. It's closer to kind of a loosely structured role-playing game than anything from the look of it. Uh, And so I can see why, if you're sitting down to the table wanting a crunchy, strategic experience, this isn't that. But if you want to weave a gloomy story about some dark uh dark sad family which is great for halloween or spooky season this is awesome it also i think it's worth talking for a minute about how great the pen and ink art is on these cards oh, It's yes. this black and white style that is somewhere between edward gory or like the old school adams family cartoons by cartoonist charles adams they are awesome these cards look great they're a little weird because they're like pictures printed on translucent plastic. So they're like a little odd, but I can imagine in my mind how when you're laying them down and they're starting to like build up and like they probably look great all out on the table.
0: I mean, I'm just going to come out and say it. Uh, Gloom walked so that Mystic Veil could run. It, it invented the yeah. the transparent cards on top of other cards, and you can see through the whole stack.
2: You're right. I mean, other games have taken what this did and uh, have done it, uh, you know, in a different way and, and really built upon it. So you're absolutely right about that. Or if this is ever going to, has this been reprinted? Is this still, like, relatively available?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's still. I think they had a Kickstarter, like, a couple years ago where they were, it was, like, reprinting all of the old stuff plus a bunch of new stuff in one box to fit it all in. If there's one complaint I have about the game, and it's such a minor, barely a complaint, each expansion that you get and the base game will only ever fit in the box it came in. So if Mm. you buy one or two of the expansions, of which there are a whole bunch, you either have to separate them out afterwards or just be okay with the fact that the game is spread out across three different boxes, and you have to grab all three of them every time you want to play which is not the worst thing because again they're little tiny i mean honestly worst case scenario you could just buy like a one of those really big magic the gathering deck boxes and shove it all in there and then it's just ready to go wherever you are
1: that's a game that actually looks super i think i'm going to be looking out for that one because i like the idea of a nice short fun little game especially i mean you know the the plastic cards i think that's. I think that's a real cool, I think that's really neat to have, definitely nice to not have to worry about the state of your games when you bring them out as well. The next game we're going to talk about is one of the facade games that they have put out, Salem 1692. A lot of the games they put out actually would fit in here, but we're going to focus on Salem. It is, in many ways, you know, it's it's very similar to Mafia, one of those social deduction games. I'm sorry, Aaron, I know, I know you're going to have a bad time, um, but we're going to... But it's essentially, you know, figuring out who the witches are. And everyone has a different role. You may be the mayor. You may be the butcher in town. Everyone has a little bit of a different power that they have. And it plays in many of the same ways that a mafia game does during the nighttime. Everyone's going to go ahead and close their eyes. The witches choose somebody to eliminate. But there's enough to spice it up that i actually quite like this in preference to a lot of these other social social deduction games i think it has a lot going for it aaron you've played this a bit as well how do you feel about this one
0: uh this is hands down without a doubt uh absolutely this is my wife's favorite game ever of all time uh anytime we go on vacation or we're headed to any sort of a game day the only thing she will tell me as we're walking out the door is like, "You grab Salem, right? Like, you have that." <laughs> um, and this is this is going to come as as a a shock to. Uh, you know, I, with with my earlier deriding of social deduction games, I really like Salem, and I think it's a really good game. To your point, Ian, it really does a lot to mix up social deduction games you're not having to rely on your ability to tease out and intuit little pieces of information Mm -hmm. based on hunches from people uh core mechanics of the game you have a, a deck of cards that everyone's drawing from and some of them are accusations that you put in front of a player because you think that they're a witch, and if they get enough of them, then they have to, uh, you know, be be forced into a situation where they may have to confess. You will also have cards that can. There's there's a there's two cards that make two players be soulmates for the rest of the game, where if one of them dies, the other one of them dies. Sorry about you uh there are cards that are beneficial that say uh whoever has this card in front of them can't can't you can't play accusations on them or you can't play other negative cards on them and the beauty of the game is you can't ever play a card on yourself you have Mm -hmm. to put it in front of another player so Just that really allows you to, you're not having to pay close attention to who's side-eyeing who around the table because Matt just played the card on Ian that gets rid of all of his accusations. So that's something that we are all aware just happened and we all need to be paying attention to because one of them knows something about the other. And it could be that they both somehow know that they're not witches. And they're just trying to keep themselves alive to to get to the end of the game to defeat the witches.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things I like a lot about the game is that instead of just having a very binary, like you are the mafia or you're not the mafia, you have a collection of cards in your hand that will say you're not a witch or you are a witch. And uh, you can like reveal the ones that say you're not a witch as you move as you get accused and so naturally people are going to start losing cards around the table and the card the witch cards can actually pass around you may be in situations where you give somebody else a witch card and they also become a witch so it's not about it's not about taking it's not about finding and exposing all of the witches it's only about finding and exposing those cards so you may be doing a great job but if you have to pass your witch card to somebody on the right and they only have one card left they could get Found out somebody could accuse them and that card may come out and so it while it does you know enable you to you know play a good social game while you can hide things sometimes it does allow people to have like a come from behind moment and just spices just enough variation into it so it's not just your bog standard like oh well i guess they i guess they just played the game well and then you know took everybody out during the night when nobody could stop them so i, I think it balances that enough that it's worth trying out and the the box it comes in is so cool the facade yes. games all have the it's a magnetic case that opens up it's a hollowed out book it's it's so nice
2: yeah uh, this is probably my favorite variation on the werewolf mafia theme uh having not played blood on the clock tower which kind of looms out there is like a game a lot of people love that kind of takes this whole experience to the next level uh, but having not played Blood on the Clock Tower, which I'd love to, this is, I think, the best variation on that idea. It has the most tense like nighttime phase where everyone closes their eyes and the witches might kill somebody. And uh, maybe they won't. And uh, there's just all so, and all the different roles and powers and card play. And you're right. The whole thing comes packaged in this beautiful box that feels uh, like a great experience when you open it up and spread all the cards out. This was, a, just, to me, just a pitch-perfect game for a Halloween party a spooky season gathering it's got everything you need tension which is it's genuinely scary in its own kind of way right because i mean the real sort of fear of like what's going on when the everyone's eyes are closed is actually kind of palatable and that's something you don't always get in uh spooky board games is actual quasi like fear is that this is actually like as close as i think as you get up the games we're going to talk about tonight to something that's genuinely spooky so this one is pretty good pretty darn good facade is just awesome there were actually you could probably made the argument to pick maybe even like bristol as a tense quasi spooky game about a dark theme but this is the only one of theirs that really approaches like supernatural and halloweeniness halloweeniness yeah that's a word let's go with that
1: The last game we are going to talk about is, in many ways, I I think one of the quintessential Halloween board games. Matt, you're going to talk to us about Betrayal at House on the Hill. What's up with this game?
2: Of course I'm going to talk to you about this. We can't have a spooky theme episode and not talk about the the granddaddy of them all of spooky games, Betrayal at House on the Hill. The best-worst game the best it, it, yes exactly right it is truly the best worst game and so we'll, let's get into it right at the beginning well i mean if you don't know what betrayal is and of course you do because if you're listening to this podcast you probably played it and maybe and you probably have strong feelings about it but betrayal house on the hill is a game of exploring a haunted house you uh, play uh in the opening act of the game you play a group of survivors and a, uh, a group of explorers in a loosely cooperative uh, fashion, uh, moving through rooms in a house that is kind of being procedurally generated by drawing a new room from a deck as you move through. And as you do, you're going to have all sorts of weird encounters. You might uh, run into uh, an event that you have to use RPG-like dice rolling to try to survive, uh, a boulder swinging towards you, or a trapdoor opening, or something like that. Uh, you, might have, uh, you might find an awesome item that can help you uh, survive the horrors of the house, or you might run into an almond, which leads to the game's uh, kind of core mechanic of love it or hatedness. Uh, when you find an almond, which is usually just a, a beneficial item of some kind, you make a roll. And then as the omen stack up, you'll eventually fail this omen uh, roll, and it will cause the haunt to happen. And this is where the game really goes either off the rails or becomes something really special. Uh, when the haunt happens, depending on the room you're in and the, and the omen that triggered it, uh, one of 50 different uh, possible scenarios will transpire that you uh, read out of uh, two uh, narrative books that come in the game. And uh, one player will become the traitor, The rest of the players will band together and form a team of survivors. And then it is a race to see which side can complete their uh, individual objective. And there's a wide range of possible scenarios in this, from traditional horror stuff like vampires and demons and uh, zombies to really off-the-wall scenarios like a mad scientist has shrunk you down to the size of mice or you've been warped into a strange dimension where your skin is melting. Uh it gets crazy out there. Each scenario has unique rules that are sometimes not really well thought out and possibly broken. And this is really where the game becomes a, a true case of love it or hate it, right? The end game scenario in any given scenario, in any given session of the trailer house on the hill can be almost entirely broken. Uh, it may be that the person playing uh, the antagonist is hugely overpowered because they found the blood dagger and a suit of armor in the first game and they quickly, in the first half of the game, and they quickly mow through the survivors. Uh, It may be that the uh, survivors win because they all happened by the procedurally generated nature of the house to be standing next to the rooms where the items they needed, the MacGuffins, were, and they assemble the thing and end the evil within like two or three turns. You really just don't know if the game is actually going to click and become playable and fun uh because of that it is polarizing but i love this game it's so weird and random and some of the best things that's happened playing in board games to me have happened in this game and some of the most frustrating it's just like that what do you guys how do you guys feel about betrayal at house on the hill
0: i have had absolutely some of the most fun i have ever had playing board games playing betrayal on the house of the hill and i have also had absolutely terrible i never want to play this game again and it sucks and i hate it playing betrayal on the house of the hill it's just that kind of a game it's the sort of game where you have to know when you sit down when you're going into it that like you all have to be along for the ride and it's gonna end well or it's just gonna suck but the journey it's about the journey and not the destination it's about the the story that unfolds as you're playing, not really about the win loss at the end.
1: In some ways, this this is, in some ways this game is a lot like playing D and D, where you have to embrace the shared storytelling of the game because yes. you may ha- like you have to approach it as if you're watching a B Halloween movie. You know, just yes. somebody walks in and a headless man on fire runs behind them as they open a closet and it's like oh no do they do they lose insanity or are they are they strong enough mentally to recover from this and, and in some ways actually become you know more sto- more stoic and, and less will and less likely to, to fall apart when they see something crazy so you have lots of small moments like that and you know if you approach it as a game that can be beaten as something that can be won in a convincing fashion then it's it's not going to be super fun I think because there is too much that can go wrong. It is all about dice. It's all about random moments. It's all about the huge swings back and forth and the, the craziness that can happen in those. So you got to just think of it as a, a B-movie that you're creating, which I, I think is a fascinating approach to a game. It, uh, it requires,
2: I think, setting it up that way. I think we've had more fun with it. I've had more fun with it playing with people when in the, in the teach, I just basically say, this isn't really a game. This is a B-horror movie that we're all (laughs) about to play together, that we're all about to experience together. And I think if you set it up like that, people actually relax a little bit because it's like, yeah, we're going to have a a sense of competition in the end game, but it's more about what type of crazy things are going to happen and how wild is it going to be. I want to uh, quickly uh, read something to you guys. This is... uh, If you have been following the Dice Bites for a while on uh, our Instagram page, you know that we actually posted about this game a good bit over the years. We've played it a lot. And this is a post from way back in 2017 about uh, betrayal of House on the Hill. Uh, The caption is, Let's recap how this game ended. A child with nerves of steel, who earlier found a burning corpse in a closet and somehow gained sanity from the encounter, descends into the creepy basement, Jabs an adrenaline shot into his heart, uses a magic feather, plays a tune on the organ, and warps the house back home from an alien dimension where our skin was being slowly dissolved by the atmosphere. Uh, say what you will about betrayal, House on the Hill, but there's not really nothing else in board gaming that can provide such crazy, unforgettable moments. And to me, that's the that's the essence of betrayal. It is, for all its flaws, it gives you some like wild things that just shouldn't it couldn't happen in anything else i also think it's the best halloween game obviously it's a haunted house it nails the atmosphere purpose perfectly Uh, it doesn't have by modern board gaming standards like amazing and beautiful components but it's it does the good it does the job you're the house is slowly unfolding around you uh you're exploring strange places you know uh, a, a, a room full of weird statuary, or a bloody, you know, basement room, or something creepy. You uh, you do have little uh, pre painted miniatures that are comically bad in their pre paintedness, but there's something sort of charming about them. It really is the, to me is the best Halloween game. And uh, I do have one hack that I would recommend if you don't do it, that will make the game better for you. If you're playing this game and you draw an event card. Make it a house roll that when an event card is encountered, the person to the active player's left draws the event card and reads it to them and doesn't uh, read uh, the outcome of what happens with each dice roll. That little change makes the game so much more fun and tense because instead of you picking up a card and immediately seeing that like, oh no, I'm stuck in some spider webs and I have four different possible outcomes depending on what I roll and there's no tension... Somebody else draws the card and tells you, Aaron, you're stuck inside some giant spider webs. Okay. Make, a, make a dexterity roll. And you don't even know like what's about to happen to you. And then you roll, and then they tell you what happened to you. That's immediately better. That's a house roll that should have been in the game. Player to the active player's left reads the event cards to you and tells you what you ran into. And it also, I further recommend that you must read it in a creepy voice.
1: You got to get into the game. I mean, reading it like that is one of the reasons why Ryan Lockett games are so good, because it brings people in. It makes it a table event instead of something that one person is doing. Because you do, like you said, you have to approach this game as a group. It's got to be fun for everybody. I do think that this game just does so much stuff really well. I, I mean, it can be an issue when one person has to become the trader and maybe they don't understand the rules. So, I mean, like there are balance issues there, but... In general, just if you want something that's that's fun to pick up and if you're willing to, to get into the experience, I, I don't think there's a better game than this for that.
2: I've also played the game, I want to give you another final thought as we sort of sum up this episode and this game. Uh, I've also played this game as a quasi-dungeon like master, as a DM. Uh, I played this with a group of total non-gamers uh, at an event. I was, you know, as happens when people know you're in the board game hobby, they said, bring... Uh, we're having a party, bring some games over. And so I brought this game along with a few choices. And to my surprise, they picked this one. And I knew nobody was really going to get the light role-playing mechanics of the dice or like the trader in-game mechanic was going to be kind of broken. So I just ran the game and I read all the encounter cards in that manner that I just kind of described and then walked everybody through the end game and rolled for all the monsters instead of the players having to do monster rolls. And that worked really well. So that's another way to play it and make it a little more fun is one player can kind of serve as like the, the, the storyteller moderator of sorts. And it helped too, because that way nobody had to like really do learn the game. I basically just set it up and said, all right, move forward into the house based on your speed. And I didn't even explain the rules at all. I just walked them through when something happened. I told them what's happening, what your options are. So that's another way to kind of make it work. It is kind of a big game for new gamers to learn, but, uh, I don't know. I love it. It's a good it's a spooky one. Uh it's also worth noting if you do like it, uh there's a, there are some extra content out there for you. There was an expansion released a few years ago, uh, and a legacy version of the game, which uh I uh hear good things about. So
0: There's also a uh D and D flavored version, uh Betrayal at Baldur's Gate. If if that if that appeals more to your particular tastes yes.
1: and that one is also a little bit more balanced it prevents some of the super early events that really break betrayal house on the hill it, it really refines the rules a lot in some ways i think you should take some of those and and use them in betrayal at the house on the hill but still i mean i think we have a good list of games here for you know while they may not be the best you know, air quotes, games. They may not be the crunchiest and most refined games. I think if you're looking for a fun, nice, spooky evening, something that you can do with family, that you can do with friends, that you can all just have a good time and enjoy yourself, I don't think you can go wrong with one of these games. I want to ask you guys before we go, do you have a Halloween movie that you guys love to re-watch around this time? I know I really like rewatching Nightmare Before Christmas. Really a classic for me.
2: Ooh, that's a good question. I don't have a I, I don't have a beloved uh, spooky movie, but I did just read uh, for the first time uh, the Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson uh, because I watched uh, like a million people uh, watch the Netflix Haunting of Hill House uh, several years ago, uh, a couple of years back, and thought that was awesome, and wanted to read the book. And man. That's a great piece of spooky fiction. If you want to read something spooky this season, have you never read it? It's a justifiable classic. You don't need me to tell you that. You need
0: to get a hold of, uh, pick up Shirley Jackson's *The Haunting of Hill House*. Uh, I mean, obviously, this this goes without saying. Shop smart, shop smart. Army of Darkness, all day, every day.
1: Love it. Great choices. That's our episode, everyone. Thanks, of course, as always, Aaron for joining us. Matt, if you want to get in touch with us, where can they do so?
2: You can find us on the gram at Dice Pirates. Um, We are there, uh, you know, all through the week-ish, doing uh, lots of uh, little reviews of games we're playing, updates, all sorts of things. We would love to hear from you. I promise. We're actually nice in real life. If you message us, if you comment, we will interact with you and even be friendly
1: keep an eye out next week of course we will be doing another episode of the captain's log keeping you up to date on the news what is going on in the board game scene two weeks from now another main episode got more exciting stuff for you so watch out for that but until then thank you as always for listening and we'll be right here on the dice pirates